Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 318 of the Fun with Cars Motorsports Podcast, or episode 5 of 2022. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who pleaded with Red Bull Racing that, despite the marketing win, engines don't run well on energy drinks. Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. It is Tuesday morning, March 22nd, and we are going to talk about the Bahrain Grand Prix and briefly catch you up on IndyCar, IMSA, and WEC races as well. It all happened this past weekend. Chris, pretty boring weekend. <laughs> I can't even say the whole sentence. Crazy weekend. Where do you want to start? Yeah, there was a lot going on even before uh, the racing got started. Uh, just a little bit of interesting news. So obviously we, we lost Vettel before the weekend with COVID. So your favorite, Nico, um, well, sorry, he's your second favorite Nico, isn't he? Your second favorite Nico in motor racing uh, was back in Aston I love all the Martin. Nicos equally, Chris. <laughs> uh, so Mr. Holkenberg, uh, super subbed. Uh, we'll talk about his performance uh, subsequently. Um, we had some interesting uh, updates from the FIA. So shock horror. It was human error that caused the debacle at Abu Dhabi. Uh, they didn't... What? Uh, <laughs> they didn't... Uh, exactly name Massey as the human that made the error but I think we could all you know <laughs> connect the dots there um what how much uh, do you think it, all these things do you think do you think these things needle at Red Bull Racing at all or do you think they could just give a whiff and just uh carry on like whatever we still won yeah I think they, they couldn't care less uh, I think uh, this is this is just trying to have some closure for the rest of the F1 fraternity and fans. I, I think what what ir- the only thing that irritates me. I think it's good that the FIA got the report out um, and sort of came clean on their assessment uh, and basically admitted that yes, they didn't follow their own rules. But this persistence that there is only a, sort of a binary reaction to this admission that either the race result stands and Verstappen is champion, or you void the race entirely and therefore. Max Verstappen is champion is absurd because we all know that the FI like nothing more than to do the old count back for race results in other situations like you know when they when they red flag a race for 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 bad weather for example they always go back like a couple of laps to record the results so of course that option that whole area of grey that you could interpret the result is completely disregarded in this situation look I mean I don't think it would help the sport if we if we nixed Max's title at this point and made Lewis an eight-time world champion. I don't think anyone benefits from that. I think the important thing is that we, uh, we, we conclude what was done right and wrong. and We learn and we move forward and we don't have that happen again. I guess we're now going to have automated unlapping messages because it's just too tricky for the race director to just say all the lapped cars have to unlap themselves as opposed to picking out the ones he prefers. So, um, you know, they're definitely... They're definitely uh, moving in the right direction. Yeah, that part is that part is correct. I completely agree with you. And this is my broken record moment. To a certain extent, it is so incredibly complex, the set of rules that the FAA has concocted for Formula One and indeed all the motorsport. We have all these exceptions and provisos and what if this and what if that that just keep layering on top of each other. And that just adds to this mess 
in my opinion, and makes it possible for late mistakes like this to be made. But the fact of the matter is that emotions were running high. It was the heat of the moment, and Massey made just a, a truly bizarre call. And every single thing he made made it more difficult for Lewis Hamilton when everything Lewis Hamilton had done had maximized his chances to win the race and indeed the championship. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it's always going to be one of those bizarre footnotes of history when we look at championships that uh, I think 21 will always be cited as uh, being a curious result for that. But uh, another thing that was a, was a sore point last year was, was the interpretation of what was legal defensively as a driver or ah, yes. aggressively as a driver. So we have new overtaking rules that, that try to clarify exactly what is and is not permissible. And they talk about uh, the definition of... Is it pinkies of an, out? Uh, you have to pass with your pinky out? Is it like a, <laughs> is like a tea time kind of thing? I mean, you know, they're defining basic things like track limits that when a, another car is alongside you, you can't force them off the track. You know, you know, basic stuff like that that worked <laughs> for decades uh, until sort of the last couple of years when Max decided to rewrite them. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how those will be interpreted by our new uh, FIA directors and and the, and the various people that have to... Uh, administer and, and adjudicate on those rules but uh, i guess we did get some evidence over the weekend where we had a we had a collision between mick schumacher and uh um ocon and that was dealt with quickly and with a five second penalty so it looks like they're going to be maybe following those rules a bit more clearly this year so i think that's all good good news that we have clear rules and they're followed yeah, except that uh the folks at Sky Sports were kind of like, wasn't that just a racing incident? But anyway. Um. <laughs> I was just going to finish on a couple of other little Formula One uh, rule changes that, that may may have missed uh, the average fan. So uh, we have, from a qualifying perspective, a subtle change that the tyre that the driver uses in Q2 to qualify on doesn't have to be a starting tire right yes 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 so that's that could change you know the tactics there you have a free t- tire choice now at the start of a grand prix wherever you qualify so that that obviously was quite big in terms of tire strategy last season and, and is now more of a clean slate um and that and does then, take away one of the like silver linings of qualifying 11th or 12th right it does it's, yeah it's like well i get free tire choice and those guys don't that's something yeah. And then also the, the tire blanket temperatures have changed for this year. So the tires aren't as heated as much uh, prior to being fitted to a car in a pit stop. So um, and that was, had impl- was it 90 degrees centigrade before or Celsius before? And now it's 80. I think the, the new temperature max is 80. I feel like. But do you remember the old, the old versus new temps? No, I, I haven't gone to that level of detail, but you know it was obvious that they were definitely cooler and that the drivers were having you know, oh, a tougher yeah. time on the outlap. Lewis Hamilton so, displayed that rather, rather well for us, I thought, after his first pit stop. Yeah, and there is also a new award for this season. It's it's called the Overtake King Award. I guess it'll be awarded on a race by race basis and on a season. Uh, basis and it's a social media vote i haven't seen the result for uh bahrain um yet so it takes a while to process i guess this award but that that's something else to get excited about if you're a big social media voter fan yeah but what i mean what's the point of that i mean i, I don't it just seems 
That just seems it's, it's a meaningless, silly nothing burger, if you ask me. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, real quick, I just want to make a correction. Uh, last last week's show, I had a great interview with Simon Paginode, and uh, he talked about how Sebastian Bourdais was kind of a mentor in getting him into the United States in the first place. And I spurted out that Sebastian Bourdais had won four IndyCar championships in a row. And I said it was either 2000, 2003 or 2001 to 2004, something like that. I was just off by a few years. It was between 2004 and 2007. And I'm kicking myself for that because, of course, it was Paul Tracy that won the championship in 2003. And that was a very memorable championship for me. And I think... Now I'm going to have to have another corrections next week. I think it was Cristiano D'Amata uh, before that. But uh, anyway, so just real quick, uh, Sebastian Bourdais won four championships in a row in IndyCar between 2004 and 2007. Okay, so no more testing or questions or anything like that. We, we've had a Grand Prix. We've absorbed it. We now know who was juicy sweatpants wearing and who was not. And... We know where the performance lies across the teams. And we also know that Kevin Magnuson is a really happy guy these days. Well, first of all, Robin, I think kudos to you. You predicted a Ferrari double podium, didn't you, last week? I did, with with Leclerc (laughs) winning, I do believe. And no Red Bulls on the podium, so you were spot on. (laughs) Well, many congratulations. No correction required there. Amazing. I I actually, I tweeted about that as I saw it happen. I was like... (laughs) I who predicted this? I'm the Oracle. So I, I, I've set I've set the standards quite high for myself this season. It's going to be a fun one. We definitely have a set of results now, and we'll dig into those. I think we should be cautious about assuming that the performance that we saw in Bahrain will be replicated throughout the season. I think Bahrain is quite a unique track, and it's quite bouncy, which was um, uh, bumpy, I should say, that, that obviously helps to get the cars bouncing even before they start bouncing on their own. So uh, we may see that the performance order change quite dramatically from race to race. Certainly, I'm anticipating that early on in the season. And that may not be the case right at the front. We may still see Ferrari and Red Bull be be the quickest cars. But we might see certainly Mercedes uh, close up a bit, potentially. We might see the middle order chop and change. Uh, we might see teams like McLaren and uh, Aston Martin suddenly leap up the order uh, if they can get a handle on their particular issues. So I don't, I don't think we should conclude that this is how it's going to be for the rest of the season. But it was fascinating looking at the performance uh, of all the teams relative to each other and, and some of the new drivers and how they fared. I mean, great to see Ferrari. You know, Ferrari introduced a really interesting car um, and they didn't really dramatically change it throughout the first two uh, pre-season tests. And that consistency of just sorting out their car, getting it to work properly, seems to have paid real dividends because they, you know, they, I mean, they essentially dominated the weekend, didn't they? They had the, probably the best performance and, and the, the best reliability. And therefore, they nailed the 1-2 fairly easily in the end as the Red Bulls, uh, you know, fell by the wayside. Yeah, it, it it was absolutely impressive, and it was, it has been just long enough, I think, since Ferrari's last episode of just true dominance, that to see them coming out right at the front, right at the beginning of the season, 
really felt refreshing and just so nice to see that it is not going to be a continuation of Mercedes dominance, not because Mercedes dominance is a bad thing on its own, but because we can't just keep going on without any shift or change. Uh, People will lose interest no matter what uh, fan votes or other gimmicks people come up with. So it's the best possible thing for the sport to see um, the most famous Formula One team in the world be back on top after what would you say 15 years of kind of being there thereabouts at times but largely kind of on the back foot yeah i mean it's shocking that their last championship was way back in 2008 uh you know that we've uh you know we've gone through a whole decade without them winning a, a championship that's right at all. so Kimi Raikkonen won the drivers in 2007 and then Ferrari won the constructors with in 2008 and that was it yeah and Massa was very close to the drivers but <laughs> but uh yeah so it's 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 been a minute yeah and then of course the last win wasn't uh, since 2019 in Singapore with Sebastian Vettel so it's been a long time just on the standing on the top step and so to get a double double podium one two with you know Charles really leading the way I mean, you know, not only did he stick it on pole by more than a tenth of a second, but he had to he had to go wheel to wheel with Max. We got uh, we got some fantastic racing uh, during the course of the the Grand Prix, um, and Charles demonstrated that he's not going to be a, a pushover. He fought <laughs> pretty hard, and um, ultimately, you know, you would say that at times he had complete control, seemingly of the race pace. It was only through the pit stop changes that Max was able to really have a crack at him, and and uh, seems to have you know struggled with tires and brakes as a consequence but uh it was it was some great racing what did you make of it yeah and and engine too a little um the thing with charles leclerc and uh verstappen was we talked about afterwards that it got to the point where leclerc said all right he was deliberately letting him buy in turn one so that he would ensure that he got drs going down the short chute into turn four. So it it was really, I think, kind of masterclass. The idea to let someone buy on purpose so you can get them back and then you feel strong that you can keep them behind you then, that's impressive but also bold. I, I, I was quite, uh, quite uh, impressed with all of it. Yeah, because there were some people saying that Max should have bided his time through through turn one to get the DRS uh, into four and then be able to hold the lead all the way around the rest of the lap. Um, so some people were thinking that Max didn't maybe play that as smartly as he should. But it was staggering, the Red Bull's closing speed with the DRS open on the, on the main pit straight, wasn't it? I mean, he was, he was being able to dive down the inside from way back. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if it's just a function of the Red Bull or or the new cars, uh, but I don't think we saw anyone else have such a powerful um, speed advantage with with the DRS open. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It was impressive to watch, but then over a lap and a, certainly over a stint, you could tell that the Ferrari was comfortable, but the strategy Red Bull was employing with the undercut almost paid off twice. And uh, the second time around, they even said, hey, 
make sure to be clean on your outlap so that these tires can warm up appropriately. And Max was definitely not happy about that. We heard radio exchanges uh, between him and his team about how that screwed him up. But over a stint, it was clear that Leclerc had a, a fair amount of pace advantage, a fair amount of pace advantage. Yeah, I think I, I, would, I would agree with that. You know, it, it's clear, though, that the differential between the Ferrari and Red Bulls not enormous, is it? Because obviously Max was able to comfortably outperform Carlos over the weekend. Uh, I mean, it was very tight in qualifying. I think it was only six thousandths of a second. But uh, during the course of the race, both Charles and, and Max were able to pull away from their number two drivers, essentially, as it was at least in Bahrain um, in terms of Sergio and, and uh, Carlos. So it um, yeah, it looks like the great you know, four-way battle there uh, between the two two top teams at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they fell off, but it wasn't by massive amounts. It was, you know, a few seconds, but not 15 or 20. So I think that that's actually an encouraging sign. Just as you said, you know, we've got several races ahead of us, and we could see a change in the order here. We're, it, we're not seeing, a, oh, boy, someone's clearly falling way behind here in my opinion at least yeah i think um carlos was very frustrated wasn't he post-race i think he felt that he wasn't uh it was the, the most he'd struggled since he's joined ferrari and was expecting to be certainly closer to charles's ultimate pace in which case you know he could have been up there fighting with max throughout the race um but ultimately it, it didn't really matter you know he got a second place as uh as the Red Bull-powered cars started to, to drop like flies. I mean, I, I was thinking just before Pierre Gasly's uh, uh, barbecue that we were, you know, shocking <laughs> that with a whole new generation of car that we hadn't had a single retiree. And then all of a sudden we see Gasly pull over at the back end on fire. It sounds like it was uh, the, I, I read that it was the MGUH um, had a problem and that caused uh-huh. the fire as opposed to a, uh, um, any other part of the power unit um, and that's a different issue to what struck uh, both Max and Sergio so they both had a fuel pump issue so it sounds like Red Bull never did a full race distance or enough running on low fuel when the fuel itself was was hot oh oh so maybe the pump starved a little bit so yeah, they're saying it was oh. either a vapor log or, or, or the pump itself failed because of the temperature of the fuel and it wasn't sufficiently cooled or some, something of that nature. But yeah, they both had fuel starvation issues and that's why they both basically stopped. So potentially quite a quick fix if they can get on top of that. It's not a fundamental issue with the, with the uh, internal combustion engine. It, it's, uh, it's the fuel system. So, but it was so are amazing. you saying it wasn't the energy drink issue that I mentioned at the time? <laughs> I don't think they're using uh, yeah, Red Bull in their fuel mixture. Um, but there, there is a, there's a requirement to run, I think, ethanol at, uh, at 10%. Yeah, E10. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that has changed, obviously, the fuel and, and the combustion and the temperature of the fuel. And that's what may, may have caught them out. It's odd. I mean, Red Bull you know, aren't normally caught out like that. So, you know, really, I mean, it was just a disastrous end to their race with Max obviously struggling with the steering issue, which sounded like it was a bent track rod from one of their pit stops. And then uh, he had, he was claiming he had other problems during the course of the race and was very frustrated, you know, um, with a yeah, variety I knew of it, things. I knew it all along, Chris. 
I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I mean to see to see Sergio spin out with a lap to go was just was just extraordinary, and obviously it just it handed Mercedes um, and in particular Lewis Hamilton a lifeline because they they had been well off the pace and you know looked like fifth and sixth were the best they could hope for, and then all of a sudden you know Lewis is on the podium, so not not ideal for for Red Bull at all. So real quick, this is a headline right on Formula One dot com. Signs calls Bahrain his most difficult weekend as a Ferrari driver, despite podium finish. So just to emphasize what you were just describing, uh, he, he he has uh, mixed emotions about the weekend, certainly. And during his podium uh, conversation with Martin Brundle, he said, yeah, it was a tough weekend for me, but we were able to put it together. So it's kind of like, yeah, it obviously ended well, but I think his own personal goals were not met, and that was the uh, that was the source of the frustration ultimately. But um, let's talk a little bit more about Mercedes. Where 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 do you think their pace is? It seems like they seem to be struggling a little bit more with the porpoising issue or the bouncing issue. You know that uh, they seem to be uh, struggling with that more than average. Yeah, exactly. And because they they haven't got a a handle on the porpoising they're having to run the car at a higher ride height and therefore they're losing downforce so they um you know it's interesting when you go most of the teams were similarly affected certainly in the first test at barcelona with porpoising in fact ferrari was one of the teams that was struggling the most with it and they seem to have now found a pretty good solution um where they can run the car at the right ride height and and not be struggling with the porpoising but mercedes clearly are still further up the learning curve and and other teams are too i think aston martin's still struggling with it a lot um so as the teams resolve their their own issues with porpoising we'll actually i think start to see a better relative performance between the cars the ultimate performance between the cars when they can all run it in a condition where the porpoising is under control and they can run it at the ride height that they wanted to to get the maximum out of the venturi tunnel so it's, um, I think what we'll see with Mercedes is that as they start to solve their problems, um, we might see some big improvement in, in ultimate performance. I mean, clearly it wasn't there in Bahrain, um, but yet, you know, third and fourth is a pretty good save. In, in, a, in a, You know, when you looked at their pace on Friday or Saturday, it looked like they, they could have been outperformed by the likes of Haas or Alfa Romeo and been right down the order you know, trying to pick up a point or two. In the end, they picked up 27. So it's a good weekend for them despite their troubles, but they they certainly need to to find some performance really quickly in order to be able to compete with uh, Red Bull and Ferrari. How did you feel about George Russell's performance? Well, George had a, you know, Mr. Saturday, as uh, he got termed when he was driving for Williams, certainly had a uh, had a big issue on Saturday in Q3. He, he only had one Q3 run. And he, he made a mistake at turn one, locking up, uh, ruining his lap. So he only qualified ninth, which, you know, honestly is not, not good enough. I'm sure he, he was unhappy about it. But he, he more than made up for that on Sunday. You know, basically it was Hamilton's wingman. He, wasn't, he was clearly not quite on Hamilton's ultimate pace. But he was but close. He, he was yeah, close. he was close. And he, and he more than took care of the, the drivers around him. Um, I mean, ironically, Botas did a typical Botas performance, didn't he? he qualified oh, man, well. I was going to bring that up too, man, because <laughs> I mean, for him to be as high up the grid as he was, I was like, hey, this is great for him. And just real quickly, his teammate Zhao, he, I think he had a good good start to it. That was a, I was impressed with his performance. But 
for Botas to go down, what was it, six or eight positions on the first lap? I was like, oh, buddy, come on. Come on. I think he blamed some car issue. It might have been an issue with the clutch, but it was very it was very typical, you know, race and qualifying being night and day. But yeah, Russell I think Russell redeemed himself um and did you know well, as, real as quickly actually uh, Russell said that he tried something a little bit bonk he just just tried a very different way to warm up the tires. I thought maybe if he was I don't remember if exactly if it was being more aggressive or less, but it's like I'm going to try something different with tire warm up to see if that helps. And he's like, and it clearly didn't, <laughs> and uh, that that was kind of it. And just as he wrote it off in turn one, yeah, he's going to want to be more competitive in in qualifying as the season wears on, though, doesn't he? I mean, he can't afford to be four or five car positions uh, off every weekend, or he, he will his position at that team will be questioned. But um, but you know, we'll give him a pass on his first first weekend at Mercedes and the fact that he rescued it in the on Sunday when the points are paid out um I thought uh overall he, he he did he did just fine though um I think you know what we who the person we really need to talk about is uh Kevin Magnuson what a weekend he had absolutely incredible yeah I, I'm just so I'm so elated for the man I so I actually I have met Kevin Mag- Magnuson I interviewed him last year because he competed in IMSA last year and he was at the duel in Detroit at the Detroit Grand Prix last year and uh, I was helping a friend out with a radio show that he that he puts together and Kevin Magnuson was a guest and you know he was contented to be where he was and racing where he was but you could see you could you it was clear that he missed Formula One and now that he's back you can there's no hiding just the elation that he's feeling and you can't question the performance either my god so the performance of the Haas clearly on the up clearly on the up and then Kevin Magnuson compared to Nikita Mazepin wow (laughs) I mean so he qualified seventh uh, just behind Valtteri but if he'd been able to emulate his Q2 time in Q3, he would have actually been quicker than Bottas and, and would have been sixth on the grid. So best of the of the rest behind the big three teams, um, which is incredible. I mean, we, we have to we have to give him allowance for the fact that, you know, he's been out of Formula One for a year. He's probably had limited um, well, 15 time. months, he argues, because of, you know, the last race of 20 versus the first race of 22. So. Yeah, okay. And then, you know, absence of simulator time. I'm sure all the other drivers have been in the sims, you know, over the winter. And because he got called up so late to replace uh, Nikita. Um, yeah, but he, hold on. I, I, Like I said, I talked with Kevin Magnuson. He does play Gran Turismo, so it can't be <laughs> that different. You know, so he qualifies brilliantly. And then, you know, he backs it up in the race. Um, and, you know, comfortably outperformed the Alpines. The Alfa Romeo with Botas's recovering uh, car. Um, I think he was ahead of Gasly while Gasly was still running, so he was definitely leading the midfield and and finished comfortably in fifth position. So he handled the restart as well, um, and just delivered an absolutely outstanding weekend. I mean, you couldn't have asked for more, right? I mean, I don't think any any optimist would have predicted a better qualifying and race result for for. Kevin and has and that's just tremendous it's just a wonderful story that he's managed to come back and perform so strongly 
and and these put has right back where they used to be um you know back in the sort of 2018-19 era so it's an amazing resurgence for for him and the team so mick schumacher he finished the race in 11th and Mm. if kevin magnuson didn't exist it was just mick mick schumacher in the haas finishing 11th we would have said Hey, that's not bad. Hey, so Haas has definitely improved. They they were right there. They look like they could well, in fact, be in the mid pack and be competing. So that's a good on good on Haas. They did make a solid improvement. The reason why we're not saying any of that is because <laughs> I mean, the Haas was the third fastest team at the end of the Grand Prix with every the way everything shook out. So it's just incredible to see how much faster Mick looked last year compared to this year. Now, again, we're only one Grand Prix in. I'm not trying to set any of this in stone, but it's just it's just so impressive to see what a difference a driver can make, truly. Yeah, I mean, it's a sobering weekend for Mick. You know, last year, everyone gave him the benefit of the doubt because he was, you know, comfortably quicker than Mazepin, which was expected, but but well off the back of everyone else, which, given the has, was also expected. So you couldn't really judge his, his ultimate performance in an F1 car. But out-qualified significantly, out-raced significantly by a, a teammate who's been out of the sport for a year. I mean, beaten to the 10th place by another GP2. Well, he wasn't a champion, was he? But another GP2 racer that's graduated into Formula GP2 1. GP2 frontrunner, for Thank sure. Thank you very much. That's the right term. So Joe getting the 10th place in his, on his debut for Alfa Romeo, uh, it's not ideal weekend at all for Mick. I mean, I'm sure he'll be heartened by the fact that the Haas is more competitive and he should be able to, to compete for, for points. But he needs to get closer to Magnussen's pace pretty quickly or he's going to have a, a tough year for sure absolutely yeah and but i think this will definitely this is the best possible thing for mcschumacher because if he can start getting more competitive against kevin that's a much better barometer of his performance and his potential so uh, I, I, this is also is going to be stressful moments but this is a good thing for mcschumacher to have much more serious competition as a teammate so we mentioned Valtteri Botas at the top. We have to give this man some credit. He ended up finishing sixth in the Alfa Romeo as well. That was definitely better performance from the Alfa than I was expecting um, because, just as you said, uh, his teammate, Zhao, also finished in the points. Is Zhao Guan Yu? I, I have to start practicing that. I hope that's not too far off. So both Alfa Romeos finished in the points. Yes, that's because of Red Bull and AlphaTauri retirements to a certain extent, but still, that's better than I expected performance. No, I agree. It was a decent recovery drive from Valtteri. We've known in the past in Mercedes that sometimes he struggled, uh, even with a superior car, to make his way back through the field. But clearly, with the Alfa Romeo, he was able to do that. Obviously, the you know the safety car and the and the three retirements helped him a little bit, but that still, he's getting ahead of. One of the Alpha uh, Tauris, uh, the both Alpines, and then, then all the slower Mercedes-powered cars. Um, so yeah, good good recovery from Valtteri and good start to his career. I mean, it's great. I mean, there was a lot made of the fact that he was lining up alongside Lewis on the grid, um, 
And so I don't think anyone anticipated that, him being demoted from Mercedes, going to Alfa Romeo. You know, you would have thought he'd be a back runner, but it looks like they'll, there'll be plenty of opportunities for him in his new role, which is, which is good for him. Because he, he is a decent driver and um, deserves a, you know, a, a, a reasonably competitive ride. And then uh, Joe qualified 15th and was able to make five places, which is, you know, again, helped by the three retirements. But compare that to Schumacher, who finished behind him, but yet started three places higher on the grid. So, you know, their fortunes were going in different directions to, to a large degree. And and so, yeah, and I, you know, we got to see some of his passing. I mean, he was, you know, comfortable enough and making some pretty uh, decent moves uh, in his debut race. That's, that's not a you know, good start. I mean, we want we want new drivers in the sport that are going to be able to compete, right? And and uh, and not um, look like, still like they're running in GP two, so or F two. So that's good. Yeah, totally agree. And I think now is a good point. There's definitely a few more teams we have to talk about, but now is a good point to say I'm feeling pretty darn good about this new era F one car in terms of racing closely, the ability to pass, it's, it's obviously improved. Well, it's funny, it's funny you should say that because I've got mixed feelings. I, <laughs> I, I will say... When it's too easy cars, to pass. I want less passing. So says Christopher Roche. Well, I don't know about you, but when I look at those cars, particularly running through the slower corners, they remind me of Formula E cars, and that's not a good thing. They look... They don't look as quick as I'm used to seeing Formula One cars look. I'm sure that my memory will fade and I'll forget what the old 2020 cars used to look like in due course. But but ultimately, they just don't look as nimble and as fast as I'm used to seeing. And so therefore, I then start to think about other single-seater categories like Indy cars or, or uh, Formula E. And um, that's not really where the pinnacle of motorsport single-seater racing should be, I, I don't think. But... Conversely, I agree with you. It does look like the cars are able to follow more closely and therefore we should get better racing. So maybe it's a trade-off that, that we should be willing to accept. But I you know, definitely thought the cars looked slow at times. Well, yeah. And I agree with you that at times it definitely was frustrating their pace. But I think that's largely due to their weight. You know, it's... It, so we had this back and forth about from 792 to 795 kilogram weight over the weekend. I heard, no, not 795, it's 798 kilograms. So we're less than five pounds away. So I'm mixing units here. Apologize. <laughs> we're less, we're less than five pounds away from 800 kilogram formula one cars. Come on. I, so th- to me, it's, it's, you got to get the weight down. Yeah, I think that would definitely help in the slow slow turns. I think the other thing is, I mean, they were, what, about three seconds off the pace from last season? Somewhere, certainly in quality pace, I think that's about right. I, I think I would be willing to accept the slow corner yeah, sort of cumbersomeness if they looked electric through the fast turns, but they didn't. And I don't know, maybe it's the nature of Bahrain itself, the track, that we don't really get to see them looking really impressive with the, all the new underfloor downforce, uh, maybe somewhere like Spa or Suzuka, maybe uh, maybe give us a better fair representation of these new cars. But but so far, that was my conclusion from the first weekend. And and again, I think the fact that we got good racing, the fact that it, you could you could follow 
uh, more closely, that is definitely beneficial. And so we'll we'll give it time. But that was my that was my takeaway anyway. I think you're absolutely right that there were times that the cars didn't seem like they should have. But I don't think that it's the way that it's generating downforce that is the cause of that. And I will say there is a part of me that wonders if Formula One should go a different direction. And as opposed to chasing the hybrid technology path, say we want to look at dust-to-dust carbon emissions and efficiencies and those types of things. And the lighter we can make our cars and the more efficient we can make the combustion chambers work and eventually lead to biofuels. But what if we had, instead of 800 kilogram Formula One cars, what if we had 500 kilogram Formula One cars? Do you see what I'm getting at? And if we look at, let's take, let's, we have 110 liters of fuel to start and let's pare that down to, okay, you get 100 liters of fuel. Okay, let's make it 90 liters of fuel and and start taking away emissions that way, not with hybrid technology, but with just good old-fashioned efficiency or, as the great Colin Chapman said, adding lightness, right? I mean, th- that would be the engineer's dream, or at least this engineer's dream, of how Formula One could improve its efficiency over time. I mean, I think these in, these internal combustion engines are already fabulously efficient compared to a, a standard road car. I think they're up yeah, around I mean, like fifty percent, over forty percent combustion efficiency. Combustion yeah. engines alone, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I mean, to your point, why not lower the the minimum weight? Why not say, okay, let's see who can get to seven hundred and fifty kilos? And you may have some teams who can't get there that are running at seven eighty or seven ninety or whatever. But then at least they're incentivized to try and bring the, the weight down and use less ballast uh, if, they're, if they're below weight. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely things that they could, they could think about and do to try and promote yeah, a weight reduction, which would certainly help um, low speed performance. Because uh, they're going to look like SUVs running around Monaco, aren't they? These things? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that, that's less than ideal. Um, but I, you know, it's it's interesting because the the pushback to your statement about reducing the minimum weight is the cost cap and how our budgets spent. So that part of it is that I think is I think the cost cap is what keeps allowing the minimum weight to creep up. Is it's like well we don't want people to spend money here, so let's just make the cars has to be a little bit heavier. Well, but, I don't know, but. That that I think that would have made sense in the pre cost cap era, because you're just going to drive more expenditure on on more exotic materials and so on and so forth. But now that you have a cost cap, you can you can say, well, how smart can you be with the money at your disposal? And and we won't take away the limitation on where you can achieve mass reduction. I mean that that would then find its way potentially across the spectrum of, of the automotive world. You know, as you said, more efficiencies in the uh, in the power unit or, or lighter weight solutions would be a good thing. But right now, they're not necessarily, unless they want to, to have more ballast and be able to move that ballast around, they're not really incentivized to chase ultimate weight reduction at this point because of that minimum weight being so high. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it will obviously have to see how the rules evolve and hopefully you know, people like Ross Braun will, will see the same thing that, that we're talking about and, and I'm sure they probably have and, and find ways to address it. I think we, um, 
you know, one of the interesting rule changes for this year uh, with, with respect to the cars is the, the need to run these full wheel uh, air deflectors or, or, or wheel spats, whatever you want to call them. And this is causing a lot of trouble. I mentioned earlier that the Red Bull, one of Verstappen's issue early on in the race was, was uh, brake temperatures. And I guess getting enough cooling air now to the brakes, even though they can now be a larger diameter with the larger wheels, uh, is a real issue. And that's really McLaren's issue. They're, they are completely still struggling with this front brake issue. They, I mean, uh, clearly they are in a rough, rough place, McLaren oh is. Oh, my goodness. So they, they introduced some changes to try and get you know, better brake uh, temperatures and, and performance out of the brakes for the race. And it then disrupted the front aerodynamics of the car. And, and then their pace was absolutely lamentable. I mean, it was extraordinary that Norris managed to qualify uh, 13th and get into Q2, but Daniel was way down in 18th. And then their pace in the race was awful. I mean, they they went odd on tyre selection and uh, they started on the harder compound tyre and they really didn't make tremendous progress until right at the end of the uh, of the race when they managed to, to nip up to 14th and 15th but bad weekend for mclaren and it's all due to this front brake uh, temperature issue so you took away my joke a little bit i was gonna have a little quip about williams is back out out uh, running mclaren but uh <laughs> and truthfully uh it was uh it was a mclaren sandwich on williams bread because uh, Albon was ahead of both McLarens, but Latifi was behind them, right behind them. So uh, Alex Albon, he seems to be, in terms of relative pace, he seems to be starting off in a pretty good place ahead of Latifi, similarly to the way that uh, George Russell was, it seems. Yeah, I mean, people were really worried about Williams on Friday because they were pretty much looked the slowest. Um, and Alex was struggling because uh, I think it was quite windy and he had a couple of moments and, and so wasn't really going very quick relative to Latifi. I think Latifi was quickening them on Friday. And so everyone was like, oh my goodness, William seemed to be at the back of the field again and Alex isn't, isn't you know, a true light-for-light -light replacement of uh, George Russell. But when it mattered, he delivered. I mean, 14th uh, was, was as, about as good as he could get, really. And then he... Uh, followed that up with with decent race performance and i think i mean okay he got pipped by an aston martin but that you know the other mercedes runners were really who they were competing against and they were in the mix so and latifi seemed to do a little bit better in the race than he did in qualifying um so yeah it doesn't look like a complete disaster for williams and i think again we have to look at track to track sensitivity and it didn't look like bahrain suited williams uh, that well but yeah, I, I was impressed with Alex. He, he looked in trouble and he rescued it and the team are, are all very positive about him. And uh, um, I thought that was a good weekend for him. And real quick, what do you think of Aston Martin? They seem to be not in a great place so far. Well, I was going to point out that the two billionaire boys left in the sport qualified 19th and 20th, strolling 19th, <laughs> 19th and 20th. Um, you know, Hulkenberg out for even longer than Magnussen comes in, out qualifies Stroll. What by about three tenths? That's not that's not good enough for Lance, is it? You know, good I, impression I mean, by Nico. How surprised are you by that? Truthfully, no, not very. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean Lance is a, a more of an enigma, though, isn't he? Because we've talked about this in the past. He, oh, he's had he, he's had bouts of real impressive pace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially in the rain. I mean, you know, that Turkish performance from a couple of years ago, where he. 
uh, qualified in pole and led the race for the first 20 laps or so was was an extraordinary performance. And he, you know, he's done that. He did that for Williams on occasion at Monza, uh, another great qualifying performance in the wet. So Lance is a has more talent than certainly Mazepan, uh, I would say. But yeah, you shouldn't be being out qualified by a guy who's just been you know, pulled in at the last second. That's that's not good enough for anybody, I don't think. And um, you know, to be fair, he did he did do a bit better on Sunday, didn't he? He got up to he got he finished twelfth, so behind Mick Schumacher. So he did recover a little bit. But yeah, Aston Martin have, have got problems. And I think the porpoising and having to, to run the car at a higher ride height that's similar to Mercedes is what's catching them out. So we're gonna see as I said earlier, once these guys figure out how to solve the porpoising issue, the true relative performance of these cars, and then we'll we'll know if they really are in trouble and are, are going to be a back marker this season. Yeah. So in just a few days' time, Formula One is going to be racing again at Saudi Arabia. It is this coming weekend. So we've got a one-two. We're jumping in uh, to the Formula One season with a double header. So we're gonna we're gonna be able to see this all over again in a very short amount of time. Real quick, we should go over the other race results. Um, and for IndyCar, at least, we are going to jump into these a little bit more down the road. But it was Joseph Newgarden who won the race in Texas. But in second place was his teammate, Scott McLaughlin. So Scott McLaughlin won the first race, second in the second in the second race. So he's doing very, very well. And it was Marcus Erickson that rounded out the podium. Um, for IMSA, it was... Three Cadillacs on the top three um, with uh, Bamber, Lynn, and Yanni uh, winning the race and uh, doing well. The top finishing, the top finishing Acura was a good friend of the show, Ricky Taylor and Wayne Taylor Racing. And uh, he was there was another Acura right behind him, the Meyer Shank Racing uh, Acura finished fifth. And in World Endurance Championship, it was not Toyota Gazoo Racing that won that one. It was Alpine Elf Team that took the victory. Toyota finished second with New York-based Glickenhaus Racing rounding out the podium. So there you go. It was a tight finish in the IndyCar, wasn't it? It was uh, New Garden yes. didn't lead until you know coming onto the <laughs> onto the New Garden final led the bank. last lap. Yeah, yeah, yeah New well, Garden led the last lap <laughs> in yeah. the very end of the last lap. With that, um, <laughs> it was it was right at the end. It was with. Uh, lapped cars and the way everything sorted out you could argue that scott mclaughlin got a little unlucky but uh you could also argue that uh, joseph newgarden uh played his cards really well so it was a it was a very cool race to see i'll, I'll put it this way because you know where my head's at it was good for an old race so uh we'll leave it at that now <laughs> The next IndyCar race isn't until April 10th, but it is one of IndyCar's premier races is the Long Beach Grand Prix on April 10th. So that one's exciting. So all of that was just the warm-up for the most exciting part, and that, of course, is my YouTube video. I've actually got one coming out in about an hour, but um, I released one yesterday. Um, Honda built a brand-new wind tunnel, a $124 million facility, full-scale wind tunnel, and they gave me a tour of this place, and they let me bring my cameras, and I interviewed a couple of people and everything. It was so super cool. You know about wind tunnels. You see them. You read about them. But to actually be in one and to see all the time and effort that goes into making one, seriously cool, seriously impressive. I saw your uh, written article. You were actually able to be in the tunnel while they were running it with the, uh, the smoke so you could do the, the flow visualization, or were you uh, behind glass? 
No, no, no. I, I was in the tunnel. I was getting blown on. Now, they had it set to <laughs> 50 kph, so yeah. it wasn't like we were maxed out or anything like that. But it was still, it was very cool to see the effect and how it works. And what was most impressive uh, is to see how much time and effort goes into um, uni- getting it uniform flow, taking away any turbulence that they can. And uh, it wasn't obviously laminar, but it was like approaching laminar flow almost. It was just incredible to see. And what was the um, carbon fiber um, sports car? The the one that had no sponsorship or paint on it at all. Was that a was that a brand new car for this season? We were actually so we weren't told, uh, but I have a I think what it was is so the current the ARX05 that Acura is racing through this year is um, based on it originated as an Orica chassis and. Well, I think that might have been um, some early version of a modified Orica chassis before it became the final Penske uh, car that we know today, or the, the Penske originally Penske-sponsored Acura ARX05 that we know today. Okay, so it's an old yeah. car as opposed to a yeah. New they car said that we they said seen. that's they said that one was five years old, is what they told oh, okay. me. Five or six, even it was something like that. So that that one's been around the block. Still looked pretty sweet though, didn't it? Oh, definitely so. And, you know, anything raw carbon fiber is cool, which, by the way, the uh, turbine for the wind tunnel itself also uses raw carbon fiber for its 12 blades, which is also cool. (laughs) But anyway, for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, it is time for 11s. So it is, mate. I'm Robin Warner. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>